electronics are all around us. From the computers and cell phones that we rely on for work, school, and pleasure, or in the aircraft, locomotives, and vehicles that get people and goods where they need to go, electronics are there, storing and manipulating data, sensing and operating in the physical world. But how do these electronics get designed? Who conceives of, develops, produces, and tests these components? In this episode, special guests Olivia Paleo and Phil Wiegand discuss how modern electronics go from concept to reality. Olivia Paleo is a hardware engineer at Shift 5, where she develops embedded hardware and firmware. Her background is in robotics and biomedical engineering, and she enjoys seeing how hardware and software can interact. Phil Wiegand is also a hardware engineer at Shift 5, where he leads hardware integrations onto platforms like locomotive, aircraft, and ground vehicles. He has lots of experience designing and prototyping electronics in both his personal and professional lives. Olivia, Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be on. Yeah, well, I am really excited to talk to you guys about uh, designing electronics because uh, as a software engineer, there's this layer of magic that happens uh, once my software gets loaded by uh, a computer or a microcontroller. And uh, it's always fascinating to see electronics go from an idea uh, onto a printed circuit board and something that you can plug in uh, to a battery or a wall or solar panel and see it do these magical things. And what's been so interesting in working with you guys is that seeing that it's not magic, it's actually um, just another form of engineering with a a unique set of skills uh, has been like eye-opening for me. And I'm excited to uh, get you guys on the podcast to talk a little bit about the 101s of designing electronics and putting software onto them to make them do useful work. Um, so maybe we could start, uh, Phil, with a little bit of like what kinds of, a, what is an electronic device um, and what kind of components go on an electronic device? Uh, well, it's a pretty broad field. I'd say, uh, you know, most of us nowadays, though, what we think of electronic devices uh, is is far different from, you know, even like five or 10 years ago, what might have been the same idea, because uh, pretty much everything we do today has, you know, integrated, you know, essentially small scale computer systems or, or you know, low level computational components integrated into everything. So there's still a lot of analog type of uh, electronics that go into making things work. Uh, but there's, there is this whole digital factor that, uh, you know, where, where, you know, a lot of the times, almost everything I'm working on, I need to be working with, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's working on the firmware level of the software, basically sort of this integration between when you're going from, from electrical signals back and forth, you know, crossing back and forth between from that electrical side to the bits, and you know what? What is you know all of this digital logic that you're you're sometimes running in purely the digital world, and then sometimes it's crossing back over, and you're running digital signals, uh, you know, through essentially you know electrical signals. And so there's definitely this this cross between it, and uh, and essentially getting all of that to work, um, you know, work all of it together, so you can you can build something, and then you can get it to the point where you have this. This finished product that you can then have some hand off to somebody, and they can either use directly, or you can hand it off to you know a high level software engineer, and they can basically take some application they wrote for for you know not that specific system, but you know just some something they they coded and run that on this device just like they would any other device. 
Yeah, it's a really exciting process. And, um, you know, when you look at a piece of electronics, oftentimes people will say, well, it's like that green board. And then there's some like little chippy looking things and some, I don't know, plugs and ports and whatever. And so it's really just this like collection of, um, of components of integrated circuits and microcontrollers and sensors and actuators and wiring. Um, and you're, you're designing a system uh, so that it does some sort of useful kind of work, right? So there's the hardware components, which Phil is, I think, where you, you spend a lot of your time in thinking about how to put these, these, these components together to, to do meaningful work. But Olivia, there's also a whole world of logic and software that goes into these things. Tell me a little bit about where software gets introduced into these electronic uh, devices. Especially when you're uh, working with these very small embedded type devices, as we tend to do, or as you see in things like, you know, your cell phone, your smartwatch, whatever, it gets really hard to distinguish the two fields as you see, um, you know, say a, a microcontroller. And from ver the very beginning, you know, we'll sketch out this high level circuit of we need, we want our you know, device to send these messages over, you know, whatever peripheral protocol you want and then plug it into this thing and have it, you know, go light up an LED and for your, your, uh, your hello world of electronics is your, your blinky light. So when you have these things, you have to work really closely with the electrical engineers and draw out, you know, here's how the wires have to go for this. And then immediately after that, it's here's what digital logic and, you know, sort of firmware software that I need to make those wires do what I need them to do. So it, it's really hard to uh, pull them apart, which I find fascinating. So. And, and it wasn't always that way, right? I mean, no. back in the day, it used to be that like, hey, you are going to take logic gates and this like electronic component is going to do one set of things that's going to do it well. Um, but now you mentioned microcontrollers, uh, microcontrollers have kind of opened up a whole, whole new world, right? So Olivia, you spend a lot of your time, uh, interacting with these teensy little computers. Tell us a little bit about microcontrollers. Absolutely. So, uh, microcontrollers can come from the very small, simplistic, you know, eight bit controllers with very little memory on them and they're fairly limited and those are, you know, great for their small applications and you'll see hobbyists use them and they go up to these you know, 32-bit microcontrollers that are almost indistinguishable from, you know, some sort of processor. But really the, um, the cool thing about microcontrollers is they have all of these embedded uh, I.O. input-output things in order to communicate with all the other devices that, you know, a, uh, a processor might not. You know, it's really good at thinking, but it's not as good at talking to anything else. So when you have these microcontrollers, you get to go program them, but then you can also go down to the, back to the electrical level and your programming can say, hey, I want you to pull this voltage high or low, or I want you to, you know, um, modulate that at a specific frequency and, you know, make a keyboard. Uh, that's a, a fun little maker project that you'll see people do where you type some keys on your laptop plugged into your microcontroller and you have a speaker hooked up to it and all of a sudden you're you're playing a song with your home row. So these things are really, uh, microcontrollers are really made so that you have a very customizable integrated circuit on an electronic design that like 
opens up the the world of possibilities to, to a much greater set of uh, features. And, and as you said, these microcontrollers are meant to interact with other components on these PCBs, on these printed circuit boards or these, these designs. Phil, tell me a little bit about some of the kinds of things that you can put onto a board. Um, you know, what's the world of, of different kinds of integrated circuits and components that you can have interact with something like a microcontroller to, to do meaningful work? Yeah. So one of the, one of the interesting things is, you know, you know, step back, you know, a decade or so. And, you know, before the microcontrollers really made their, their advent, you know, you'd, you'd be dealing with, you know, essentially larger ICs that had uh, maybe some specific logic elements or, you know, even a, a, a larger, you know, a, a group of logic elements, basically like a really dumbed down system all on, on one thing. And then on the other hand, you, you know, you get things like your, your, processors for computers and the really nice thing about the microcontrollers you know they have so was saying they've got all the all this input output processor stuff and and unlike the the cpu you know you don't have to have uh, it has essentially a, a small portion of ram built into and all these other pr- uh, components all consolidated onto one ic and this is the kind of thing which is really cool with what we're we're dealing with now is you know just ic technology you know, is is really you know has is has been advancing at a uh, an astounding pace for literally decades now, um, and so you get all of these really really advanced components in these in in essentially a single chip, and you know before where, where you had to break it out with a large number of components, you know you have all of that and grouped into one, and now you know we're sort of sorting out you you got your green board as you say, and instead of seeing a green board filled with you know big capacitors and resistors and you know very blocky type components and you know you look at your you know you uh you know anyone's ever been unfortunate enough to like drop their cell phone and see the inside of it um you know it's it is this compact little board with all of these different chips and 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 connection points and everything integrated into it and so you know you've got all this this high level you know digital logic stuff talking but at the same time Every time you got one chip, you know, everything inside of it has been designed, you know, and optimized to do that, but it still needs to, to talk to the other components. You still need to feed it power. You still need to make sure that, you know, well, there's not something right here that's speaking really loud and, and is, you know, is speaking so loud it's, it's conflicting with what this chip right next to it is doing because he's in his room and he can't, he's trying to speak to something else. And it's, you know, it's like having a, a really loud guy in your apartment and the, the communication lines, you know, could get, get noise and you gotta, you gotta deal with, with all of this. So, you know, you're, you're working with the firmware engineer <laughs> to make sure that, you know, cause they're dealing with the, the high, the, you know, the logic that's going in, on inside of all of these really advanced chipsets. And, and then you're dealing with, okay, how do I, you know, one, how do I schematically connect everything? Like what connection points need to go where, what kind of power do I need to put on this stuff? Where do I need filtering and, you know, all of this, this other stuff to make it. And then you also not just need to consider on the schematic level, but then you need to go to this whole other level of, okay, how do I actually physically put this together all on one board? And it's like a, a really big, complicated Tetris machine, you know, Tetris game, where you're fitting all this stuff together, and then there's all these other rules where like, oh, you know, this, you know, not, not only do you have to fit it all together, but if this piece goes right here, all of a sudden it causes a problem with that piece. And uh, there's, you know, and essentially, so it's, it's, you know, all of this fundamental electrical engineering kind of stuff that, you know, is, is, was was the exact same for when you're dealing with you know just big old capacitors and resistors and op amps and and other components um 
and and essentially it's the fundamentals are all the same but now you're you're dealing with you're still dealing with those to some extent <laughs> but now you're also dealing with all these high highly advanced chips um yeah. you know and and the communication back and forth to get it all to work yeah it's so interesting it's like um there's so much that's evolved both in software and in hardware but some of the enduring principles about how you do engineering um i've really like been been pretty consistent over the past few decades. Um, Olivia, tell me a little bit about how how we go about designing electronics. I, I think maybe we could we could start with uh, you know here's a startup idea, and if anybody does this, I guess you can uh, you can pay us a royalty. Um, but but just let's pick like some IoT device, like a hacker hobby project, like uh, let's say um, something to open a garage door uh, from 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 an app on your phone. So let's say we wanted to do that. That was you know the three of us are going to design this, this IoT garage door opener. Uh, how would you as an engineer start thinking about the design process for that, for that, um, that device? Yeah. So if you had me, gave me that task of open a garage door from an app, the first thing that you sort of do is start to break it down into what little pieces do you need to do that? So you know, coming from robotics, a lot of what I think, how I think of things is in terms of, you know, the, the brains, the sensors, and the actuators. So to some degree, when you do that, you're going to need, okay, I'm going to need something to sense that somebody clicked this on their phone. I'm going to need something to actuate the opening of the garage door. And I'm going to need some brain that can link those together. So using, for example, a microcontroller, I might have as that sensor, you know, a Wi-Fi chip that can, or Bluetooth or however the phone's communicating with it, that, you know, you program to send a specific, you know, sort of logic when it gets the input from the phone. And you hook right. that up to the brain and you tell the brain, the microcontroller to, uh, as it gets that, you know, send something off to the motor to tell it, hey, start opening the door. and you know, in between all of that, each of those little packages is going to have a set of requirements of other things that it requires in the circuit in order to make it work. So you have to do the whole power setup for it. You know, motors will take a lot of power. Okay, you might add a couple of extra chips there in order to make sure that it doesn't take too much and all of a sudden the controller and the Bluetooth can't work anymore. Then you might say, oh, this Bluetooth module needs, you know, these specific other logic inputs to it to make it respond the way you want. And then you draw those traces on your schematic. And then once you've got this sort of higher level thing of what you need and what all of those things need and sort of that whole uh, branching tree effect, then you can start working on the schematic with someone. And then that's when you turn it into a layout, which is then what gets put on your nice little green board and you put it together and you start testing it. Awesome. Yeah. So like we, we, we started with kind of functional requirements. So you, your brain immediately went to, okay, you told me what the user wants to do. What are all of the different groups of functionality that we're going to need for this project? And you, I, I like this, this way you broke it out of saying sensors, actuators, and the brain, right? And then you immediately started thinking about, okay, well, how do I, how do those parts interact with each other, right? Phil, something you spend a lot of time doing 
is sourcing parts. So, um, you know, we were, we were, we were talking about some, some motors and some different kinds of integrated circuits for, um, detecting signals and for the brain is probably going to be something like a microcontroller, you know, uh, the, so you've got the actuators for, for being able to move the door. Maybe you have sensors for tripping, whether there's, there's something obstructing the door, that, that sort of thing. Tell me, tell me a little bit about now that we have the functional requirements, the kinds of idea of what the components are supposed to do. How do you go about actually picking the parts that are going to go into our design? So this this is sort of, uh, um, you know, I, I like the way you all laid this out uh, because, you know, I'd, I'd be you, you give this task to, you know, your, uh, you know, Olivia and me, you know, okay build, build, you know, something that I can, I can use my phone to do this. And, and, you know, I'd, I'd sit down with Olivia at the beginning of the project and she'd be like, okay, you know, I, I need to, I need to connect through Wi-Fi. You know, she has these block elements and then I'm like, okay, so you want to connect through Wi-Fi. What type of Wi-Fi system are you using? And then I start looking at different Wi-Fi chipsets. What are the, you know, what are the community, you know, what type of Wi-Fi bands does the, do these chipsets support? How much space do they take? How big of this, you know, are we making this really, really small or do we have more space? Am I power limited? Do I need a Wi-Fi chip that, you know, I can I can feed it all the power it needs and I don't care if it's efficient or not? Or is this on operating on a battery? And I need to be worried about, you know, okay, how much, you know, I can't go burning through that, or you know, you're gonna you're gonna set it up and it'll work great. And the next day you come over and you're clicking and you're going, why isn't it working? Well, battery's dead, you know, because you didn't have an efficient setup. Um, so, you know, these are, are all the kind of things where I'm, I'm looking at this and, and you're constantly sort of, you know, going through and looking at all these manufacturers with the different chipsets and they're competing and you're, you're seeing, okay, you know, who is, you know, on, on one side there's, you know, sometimes the newest thing can be a little bit problematic because I know Olivia has, you know, you, something comes out looking great and, you know, it's, it's, it could still be a little bit buggy because it's so new on the firmware side. Um, so sometimes, you know, depending on what you're doing, you would take a step back and like, what is, you know, is there something that there's, there's been a, a, a lot of, you know, testing on that, that, that makes it easier, you know, on, on the software side, or, you know, is this something where we want to try and get the absolute newest best thing on the market? And then is there something, you know, usually you can't get, you can't get the most powerful, most power efficient, smallest package Altogether, there's usually some sort of trade-off, and so you need to take a look at what your your larger design is and sort of optimize for that. And then, you know, once you started selecting your components, like okay, you know, I don't need a full computer system, you know, a, a laptop level processor <laughs> to run this little thing. So I can instead of going with like you know, you know, a full processor or even like a 32-bit, you know, uh, large-scale microcontroller, get away with you know something like maybe just an 8-bit controller. You know, something something that's smart, but like, you know, it just needs to, to be able to be programmed to do this one task. So you, you select that based on these parameters. You select your Wi-Fi chip. You know, I'm looking at the motor thing, like how much force does this motor need to, to you know, uh, uh, be able to output um, on this, you know? And this is where you're going from that digital side back more towards the old analog stuff. You're dealing with, you know, big, big motor systems and, and a heavy power system that needs to be able to to uh, feed that kind of motor. And as Olivia mentioned before, now you're, you know, if you're also feeding a big motor on there, you need to be able to separate your power systems, make sure that, you know, when that motor clicks on, that you don't draw so much power, you brown out your computer. So you usually, you know, you now have a power management block and you need to make sure that, you know, all of this stuff is selected right in consideration of what you're trying to build, you know, what your priorities are on, you know, on this, you know, size factor for us, you know, how much processing power do we need to be able to put in this? What are the Wi-Fi capabilities? What are my my power options? Um, so all this goes into the into the 
these design considerations for it. And you, you sort of optimize your chipset selections based on that, your different component layouts, you know, you're starting to basically take these functional blocks and say, okay, this functional block for the Wi-Fi unit. Now here, here are our Wi-Fi options. And, you know, we select this one and then we start actually connecting it to the rest of the system and looking at, you know, now we're, now we're down into, instead of just, you know, we've sort of selected the component we want to use, and we're starting to actually get into the, the deep part on the hardware side of, okay, how do I physically set this up? What are the main connections? And then how do I lay this out on a board? And then, you know, usually, you know, sometimes I think the next question would be, you know, well, after you have this design, then, you know, the sort of building and testing process. And so, you know, do we want to, sure. you know, rather than jumping straight to sort of just design it and try and push it out, usually, you know, you're, you're grabbing all these components in your lab and you're wiring it together. And then I go over to Olivia and like, okay, you know, these, these are sort of the functional groups. We've selected these chipsets out. We've, we've Frankenstein some development boards and, and evaluation modules and other stuff or slapped it on, you know, a, a quick board that, you know, we, we printed out either in-house or, or, you know, quickly sourced and, and we sort of rig up this prototype design of what we think we're kind of wanting to do and take it over to your firmware right. person. Like, let's, let's start, let's start seeing if we can get this thing working. And so yeah. you know, that, yeah. that whole process. So that's great, Phil. So you have uh, an idea of how you're going to source all of these different components because there are different kinds of microcontrollers, different kinds of actuators and power units. And you're considering things like, well, what is the operating condition for, for this device? And then you're looking at data sheets, right? The the kind of advertised functionality and features uh, for each of these components. Uh, you're balancing those against uh, availability. Like, are the, is this an obsolete part or is this something that uh, I can buy very easily? As well as cost, right? Because cost is always a, is a concern with, with some components can get pretty expensive and others are, you know, cost pennies uh, for, for thousands of them. Um, and so, uh, you know, you're, you're considering all of these things, you source these parts, and then you mentioned something called a dev board. Uh, Olivia, can you tell me a little bit about at this part in the, in the design where we've got some sort of candidate parts that we're going to put into our, our overall, um, overall solution. We've, we've, we're either going to develop or we're going to buy these, these dev boards and stitch them together. Tell, tell me what, what those, what those are and, and why we do this part of the process. Yeah, so uh, dev board or development board is sort of your debugging best friend, uh, both for the software and for the hardware of it. And often you'll you can use you know an off the shelf development board for some parts, which has you know their nice little compact IC on it, and then it breaks out to all of these bigger pins that are easy to you know put your multimeter in or hook something else up to, or you could do it you know in house with breadboards. You take, you know, maybe a, a bigger version of the thing that you're going to use. So, yeah, for example, you know, if I'm using a specific microcontroller, it's probably going to come in, you know, three different sizes that are attached to things in three different ways. And I take the big one that could plug into this big chunky breadboard and I put a bunch of wires in it and then I can start testing the firmware on it. And if something doesn't work, then it's very easy to take a probe and you know, poke it in there and say, hey, is this being powered properly? Is is the problem that, you know, this uh, signal is getting, you know, there's the noise problem with your, your roommate screaming at you while you're trying to whisper on the phone. Um, is it, you know, are things moving too fast, too slow? Is it the software that's the problem and I see that nothing is moving when I think it's supposed to be? Um, so 
dev boards are sort of this nice intermediate step that can really, really help the debugging process and sort of let you um, parallelize the work that you're doing. As you know, once a dev board is hooked up, Phil can go and start making his miniaturized or most cost efficient or whatever optimization parameters we've chosen version of like a final board. And I can sit there and start tinkering and make sure that my digital logic is working the way that I think it should and that it can, you know, communicate to a larger software application the way that I think it should be able to and that sort of thing. Right. And, you know, sometimes we find out, oh, my gosh, yeah, actually, we sourced this part and we don't think it's going to work for our application. And it's a, it's a relatively straightforward process for you to go and get a new dev board for that new component, bring it into your design and do and do development and testing on exactly. that. Right. Um, yeah. And it's so there's there's parallels to this for software folks where, you know, we'll sort of build what we call like a minimum viable product or something that, you know, does the functionality that we need and no more. And maybe there are some parts of it that aren't optimal, right? Like there's certain speed ups that we could have or we could parallelize something. But what we want to do is just make sure that end to end it does what it's supposed to do. And we can do some sort of basic functional testing. Um Sometimes there's an in intermediate step, right? Where uh, Phil, I've seen you put these together, but um, uh, proto boards. So, so tell me a little bit about what a proto board is and what kind of that represents in in, in this process of designing electronics. So, depending on you know, a lot of the times we're using these dev boards. There, you know, a company makes this microcontroller and they want to make it very easy for you to to develop something on. So they they sort of pre make that. And my my kind of general rule is, well, if if they don't have a dev board for something, you can you can make one. It can be a something as what Olivia mentioned earlier. You you can simply take a breadboard, which is this kind of big plastic thing, and it's it's where you can like stick actual wires into it. You know, you can plug the things in just like almost with your battleship. You know, oh, stick your stick your your big processors, your your big carrier ship over yep. here and then you've got your little logic units which are your other little ships and you, you stick them in there and you're you're sticking wires to connect them all but then you know you've got these these different proto boards you know there's there's uh you know there's different levels of so the breadboard is kind of the simplest easiest way it doesn't always work for some components there's there's the proto boards um you know which which there's kind of an entire different field of those now so you can get the in the old school kind of what you'd see is you get a sort of a copper sheet board and that pre-drilled holes and you could slot things in there and start soldering stuff together um a lot of the times you know when, when i think of a proto board now like we have a machine over here where instead of if i've got a design and and i want to uh, sort of test it out um, but I don't want to spend either the money to go get it fabricated professionally or there's, you know, I need to do it quick and I can't spend, you know, even a, you know, I can't wait for, you know, a, a week or two to get this board back or I don't want to pay the really high cost of getting it done, like, you know, really quickly. Um, we've got this like 3D uh, printer machine, which actually uses a, 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 uh, um, a sort of silver-based epoxy compound and just, and, and literally you can print out traces and so I can create you know, just really, you know, quickly sketch up a design and print out this sort of custom board, um, you know, for prototyping this uh, a unit on. And so, you know, basically it's, it's this combination of all this stuff. And, and the whole goal here is to, to basically, you know, there's, there's always the difference between, you know, how something looks schematically and then how something will actually work in reality. And you need to be able to do these checks. And instead of, you know, doing a long cycle where you, you try and build the schematic and then you, you do a big test run and then you have to go back and solve it and redo that process. You're sort of testing it all. You're testing these out at a component level as you're adding stuff or, you know, if, if you got two things that look like they 
you know, they might both be options. You could grab, you know, a development board or a proto board, your, your own option for this, test them both out. And, you know, then maybe once you have a larger idea, take a couple of the components and put them all onto, you know, this quickly fabricated board that you can either, you can breadboard together or you can, we can, we can make a little custom board, but it's, it's all about letting us, us testing it. Because if you can, if you're testing it as you're designing it sort of stage by stage, it's a lot easier to debug. And I, it's always kind of interesting to debug, you know, between, is it a hardware issue or is it the firmware issue? Because this is, they're so interlinked now. Right. You know, as Olivia was saying, when she can stick things in there and something's going wrong and I can, I can grab my, you know, it's like, oh, these, these two chips aren't talking to each other. Why? And, you know, I grab my oscilloscope and I run over and I, I plug it in there and, you know, plug the, the, you know, the oscilloscope, they've got these, these awesome new ones. You just you run it on your computer and I can monitor all the stuff and I, I can, I can be looking out there and like, okay, you know, I, I see like, I can see literally the digital logic flowing over here and I'd be like, oh, oh, wait a minute. That's not at the right voltage level or there's some other issue on her. I see a bunch of noise or, or I'm going, wait a minute, I'm seeing, you know, this looks like what I, I, I think the logic stuff that should be going across it. Let's, let's go back and check if there's something screwy. You know, if you've got a little gremlin running around inside of your IC, that's uh, in the firmware land. So, you know, it, it right. really helps to be able to test these at this different component level and, um, and be able to split it up. Um, you know, yeah, it's it's easier to debug good. issues when you're when you're at the uh, the proto the, sorry the the dev board uh, level right because it's so easy for you to get your fingers in there and and check all the connections and swap components out if you think something might be broken. Um, so you want to solve problems as you go along incrementally rather than sort of spend a whole bunch of time putting a board together, getting the board as a you know finished product, and then finding a whole bunch of problems in it that you've got to. Um, you've, you've, you've got to debug once everything's all congealed together, right? The really nice thing is, you know, we have all this technology now that makes us really cost effective. You know, as you're talking about, you know, using, you've got these off the shelf dev boards. You have a dev board, you know, it used to be, well, you either grab your breadboard or, or your, your old proto boards with holes and you're sitting there trying to solder stuff together. And we, there's all this, this technology now that makes us so much easier and quicker and faster and more cost effective. So we can, you know, we've got a lot of versatility in being able to do this without needing to rely on, you know, very long professional fabrication runs. And even even if you're not doing something, you know, let's say you're doing something that doesn't require the space requirements of really fine tolerance of, of co really costly manufacturing stuff, that, like the stuff in your cell phone, you know, it's it's really crammed in there. And you need, you need some really high-level fabrication tolerances to do it. But if you're not dealing with that, there's also, you know, essentially what is kind of, you know, I, I know the makers, the whole DIY and, and maker community are, are really happy because now, you know, they can, they can stuff that doesn't require quite that level of, of tolerance and miniaturization, you can get pretty cost effectively. And at the same time, now there's also all this other equipment out there that you can get where you sometimes don't even need to go through that process. You can simply, you know, do it right in, in your lab. Um, sometimes you need, you know, uh, uh, you don't necessarily need even a really, really expensive, you know, high level lab to, to do some of that. Yeah. And, and the maker stuff is so interesting because it really lowers the bar for people that want to get involved in something that up until pretty recently was very capital intensive. You know, you couldn't sort of mess around with hardware development in the same way that you can software, right? If you've got an internet connection and a laptop, you can get involved with software engineering. Um, whereas, you know, there's obviously a physical component to a lot of electronic design. So it's an exciting time. Um, kind of along those lines, 
Olivia, you know, you um, specialize in programming these teeny tiny computers, which are uh, very interesting and unique in their own right. Tell me a little bit about um, what that looks like. So, so say we have this dev board set up, you've got a microcontroller, you've broken out a bunch of pins, they're connected to the different subcomponents. If it's a garage door opener, maybe we have, you know, the motor control, we've got a sensor for um, the thing that the door being blocked, we've got um, uh, some maybe Wi-Fi chip that's handling communications. Uh, now it's your job to program the firmware for that microcontroller. Tell me a little bit about, you know, pick a family of microcontrollers and tell me a little bit about what that setup would look like. Yeah. So uh, the family that I'm most, I've done the most work with are uh, AVR 8-bit microcontrollers. And uh, a lot of times when you go and you're choosing what controller you want, you'll also look at the documentation for it, you know, sort of the the hardware version of, you know, your, your Doxygen or something, and you go through it and they hopefully will have, you know, a thing on the easiest way for you to program these things. Because unlike running an application on your computer, I can't just compile my C program and then, you know, make my executable and run it. That doesn't work. So there's oftentimes this, uh, this intermediate bit of hardware that you use to sort of translate whatever your original program is in whatever language you wrote it in, probably C, and then turn it into the type of executable that the microcontroller expects. For, um, for the 8-bit AVRs, they expect an ELF program, and then they change that into an Intel hex executable. And then you, you feed it to these intermediary devices, which then they'll reset the microcontrollers to a mode to accept a new program. And they'll handle all of that um, initialization so that you can go and you flash. You flash the program into the microcontroller's flash memory. And then it translates this file into exactly the stream of bytes that'll be permanently recorded on that controller until you next change it. And then you start it up and it'll reboot it usually at the end of its um, process. So you can immediately see, hey, has this code that now has gone through three different steps to be compiled to the right type of executable and then put onto this memory, does it work? Is my light blinking? Is my motor moving? Can I use my Wi-Fi? Right. And it's it's so interesting because these chips, most of them don't have operating systems, right? So you're like, in some sense, writing an operating system for, for this yep. chip. It's the only thing that's running um, on, on the processing unit. And um, while that environment can seem a little daunting to a newcomer, um, I think there are a couple of tools that are really helpful. Number one is you know, there are ways of debugging these programs, right? Yes, yeah, so you have JTAG, you have uh, uh, also serial debugging. So you can make print sta statements inside of your program and then observe different values coming off of the, uh, um, off of the microcontroller. Uh, there's, there's blinky lights and things like that. Um, and there's actually, so, so AVR is a really uh, neat family of microcontrollers because, you know, the original Arduinos, uh, are, are, um, the 328P is, is, is an uh, AVR microcontroller, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, um, this is one of the things where I really love the maker community because they make all of this even more accessible. Even if you are someone who's done it for a while, oftentimes 
you know, there'll be an upgrade or you'll switch to a slightly different variant of it. And you could spend your months and months seeing every little difference from the thing that you know, or you could go and somebody in the maker community has probably written up a quick guide on, hey, if you're used to use used to using, you know, this teensy two, and now you're using a teensy three, and you know, it's got this different microcontroller at its heart. Here's the fundamental things that you can start looking into on why they're different. And you know, here's a couple of easy ways of debugging it. Here's some pitfalls to watch out for. And it's really nice to have that sort of uh, starting block to look at rather than having to do all of that legwork. Right. It's sort of, uh, I like to think of it as like the hardware version of the Linux community. Totally. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, you put more devices in the hands of more people. People are going to get passionate about building tools and applications and um, sample projects around those platforms. And then you get this kind of virtuous cycle of people contributing and helping each other um, online. And, and it generally in, improves community and, uh, and knowledge around that thing so that it becomes easier and easier for you to develop on the platform, which, of course, is like the dream for the chip maker, right? Which is why we, I think we've seen so much um, embracing of the maker community by, by, by the industry. Um, so, Phil, as Olivia is doing all of this work, developing the firmware to make the system do what we want it to do. Uh, she mentioned that we can now parallelize a task of taking these components and thinking about how do we make this production ready? So we're going to take all of these different integrated circuits and connections and resistors and capacitors and power supplies and these sorts of things. And we're going to bring it together into a printed circuit board. So tell me a little bit about how do you design a printed circuit board um, to, to, before it goes out for fabrication? Yeah, so one of the nice parts, you know, as as we said, you know, we've got these these development boards, valuation boards, the whole breadboard, protoboarding, and the rest of that. And I wouldn't even say it's not so much that you're you're paralleling your process because there's actually this constant back and forth between the hardware and the firmware side. We're like, okay, let's let's try this chipset, and you put it in there, and we wire this board up in one manner, and we're testing, like, you know, okay, this firmware is working. We add this component, and all of a sudden things are not working, and you're like, okay, there's there's a hardware issue here, and you swap that, and sometimes it's software, you know, and, you, and so there's this. It, what it does allow is, you know, instead of having to build the hardware, then build the software, and then test it the software and the hardware are sort of be, being built and tested at the same time. So you've got Olivia over there, you know, writing the, the code for these different microcontrollers and integrating with them the components pretty much at the same time as I'm, I'm adding more stuff to this design and fleshing out. But then you get to a point usually where, okay, we've got a setup now that we're, we're pretty happy with and we think this is going to do our, our goal. And, and now we need to take that sort of, you know, we, we've, we've taken these block elements and we've fitted them out with the components and we have our schematic design of, okay, this is how these different chips connect. And now what we need to do is we need to lay it out because we're, we're, we need to take all of that and instead of having a, a big, it looks kind of like a wire spaghetti mess sometimes between different boards here and there and breadboards and other components. There are, you got wires going everywhere and, you know, it, it sort of works, but it's not something that, you know, you want to stick in your garage to run your garage door open. You want something that's, you know, in a nice little like, you know, box or, or, you know, uh, or, or something, um, you know, well, you may you also want to make factor. a thousand of them. Right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, for a production run. So, you know, you, you got to take it from that, that you, you sort of, 
you've tested your schematic design and now you need to actually figure out how you want to build it. And so, you know, there's usually at the beginning you're like, okay, I want to, I want to fit this, you know, into some particular form factor. And you're sort of running on that. And depending on how small you want it to get and what environmental factors you want to deal with it. Because if, I, if I'm building a car door opener in, in the main United States, I'm, it's going to be along one lines, but if I'm like, up way in Alaska and I need like, you know, somewhere, you know, where, where this thing might like be way down at frozen temperatures. There's a whole set of like other physical aspects for those, those environmental, a harsher environment that I need to design for. But you take all that into consideration and, and you sort of build out, there's a design set rules like, okay, we need these particular types of tolerances for environmental. And because we're making it this small, we can use these particular, uh, you know, fabrication techniques. And uh, with the miniaturization that we do nowadays, there's there's a whole slew of really cool new advanced things. Everything from, from doing things like instead of just, you know, one, we have all these really, really small components. There's a lot of BGA type and micro BGA components on here. What's a BGA? your standard label. Uh, oh, so uh, a ball grid array. So if you've ever seen a CPU and at the bottom, it looks like there's just this this matrix grid of all these little, looks like little dots. And essentially, instead of having a, you know, an old school chip where you see it and it has these like little legs coming out off over the side, instead, they've got these, all these outputs on the bottom and they literally have little balls of solder. And so when they put it on the, the board and they usually use a reflow technique for this and essentially the solder sort of this little ball of ball of solder melts and you know connects to the pad underneath it it's because there's so many oh, connection right. points to the to the to the to the ic that you you can't actually physically make that many legs on on, on the chip right yeah even with the, even there are like micro leg designs where they're really small legs and all packed in there but even still you know the modern you know you get chips with you know over a thousand connection points on a single chip that's like you know like just a couple square like you know millimeters you know on on you know a couple millimeters on a side and you've you uh, it's just packed with these connection points so you know in the administration they're always figuring okay how how can we you know take all this really complex stuff and just squeeze it down a little bit more and there's there's all these different levels so you know there's there's these different type of components going from your your standard you know uh you, you had in the old old school uh, the dip switch or uh, uh dip connection kind of you know be what you put in the, the breadboard and then you get you got you know, your t-sop and there's there's a whole field of uh different types of of the leg connectors and basically going smaller and smaller and then you get to bga and micro bga and there's there's a couple different ones and essentially just you know all about how they're repackaging it to fit in the smaller form factor and then the smaller you go that you need to start considering different fabrication techniques because you know you need to route all these sometimes, you know, sometimes you're just dealing with, you know, like tens of channels and then you're going to hundreds or thousands of connections running through this board and you get into how many layers do we need? Because sometimes you, you build up this, you know, on a, on a simple board, you got maybe just it all on the top or maybe the top layer and a bottom layer. And, and then you can start stacking layers and you can do things like putting, okay, I'm going to have a ground plane here to actually help, you know, cancel out noise from these lines down here, from these lines up here. And, and you get into all this really cool stuff about, how did the electrical properties, you know, get affected when you start talking about not just sort of a schematic world, like this device is connected to this device, but this device is now connected with this type of material around it with this length and in this setup. So sort of the, the physical world factors that go into it. And yeah. so you take all these parameters and, and build that, you know, into your design and you know, everything from a fairly, you know, simple setup to some truly advanced ones and, and, the, the really advanced ones, you know, they're now doing things also like instead of the, 
the capacitors on the top. Sometimes they'll have, you know, like inbuilt capacitors into the PCB where they've got capacitance film, you know, in, in this layering mechanism. So right. instead of these individual components, you've, you've got these really super advanced boards where it's, they're, they're literally, you know, before it was you, they were just smashing the stuff into the chipsets. Well, now not only do we have these advanced chipsets, but you're getting these advanced boards where you're sort of consolidating, you know, even more components into just the board fabrication. Yeah. So, and it's such an exciting area of technology, like how PCBs work. So, I mean, there are two, just zooming out for people that are not really familiar. They look at these things like, all right, well, there's this green board and they're connecting a bunch of chips together. Um, there are really two fundamental roles for a, a printed circuit board, right? One is the electrical connections between all of the chips. So that's something, you know, Olivia was talking about where we would uh, have these uh, dev boards, these development boards, and then wire things together so that they're connected in a certain way. So that so the PCB, the printed circuit board, will handle those connections. Um, and then the second thing is actually physical structural stability. So it, it, it holds the chips in place and gives them a, a rigid structure so that they're not, you know, unlike the spaghetti wires that we see when we start building these dev environment setups, you know, you're not like knocking wires loose and things, right? So um, Phil, you were talking about how these different layers, these different planes on the PCB uh, serve the function of connecting the integrated circuits in a certain way that we've already figured out how to do in the dev setup. But you're actually having to physically design those connections. So tell me a little bit about the programs, the CADs that are available to design those connections. And what does that process look like as you're going from the, the dev environment into a, into a finished you know, PCB design? Yeah, and so you know you have these these you know computer aided design programs that can do practically anything. And there's an entire subfield specifically for you know um, uh, you know not just electrical engineering but sort of the hardware design and 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 even within that subset there's quite a few different ones. So I'm um, you know if if you're on more on the electrical side and you're you can use this you know. Uh, uh, these computer systems to essentially lay out, you know, okay, I think I have these chips and these components and put it on there. And with like a spice program, it, the computer can actually calculate and simulate what you're doing. So you can sort of try and test out some of your circuitry without even needing to do, you know, to have an idea of what it's going to be like before you even, you know, start putting the, the components together. And then you can take that. And so with the you know, so you can actually you've got that whole whole category to actually test out your schematic design um, as you're you're laying it out. Because the first step is is if you've if you heard me saying schematic, so what you're what you're doing at that point is you're not even considering the physical aspects. You're you're looking at sort of take your your block group or you say you had a Wi-Fi chip at this block area. And now we've selected the chip, and I know with this chip I've got let's just say like 32 connections on it. And in the schematic, you've got essentially a block, you know, this is your, your chip and it's got all the connection inputs outs on in there and you, you lay it down and you're saying, okay, where are all these 32 connections going to? These ones are going to power, these ones are going to ground, these are for communication, these ones have some alternate function that we're not using. Um, you figure all that out and you sort of lay it out in sort of like a, a sort of wire block diagram of how just how everything is connecting together and, and you're that's turning your the spaghetti uh, from the dev environment into spaghetti on the computer screen. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and and the nice part, so I was talking about you know spice programs before. Where essentially, you can you can take that and it can actually start running calculations and simulations on it. Um, and then 
you you can take that schematic though when you're ready to actually go to the sort of the production phase and there's there's different versions but essentially what you're what you're doing is you're taking those schematic files and they'll have what are called footprint files that go with it so you know that that wi-fi chip with the 32 connections well in the schematic it's just a block with you know connections like one through 32 and the footprint file is okay here's the physical dimensions of this chip here here's where the actual pads are and there's an association between that half of the program where you take the schematic design it actually creates what's called a uh, um, a net listing or sometimes referred to as like a, a rat's nest um, uh, file where essentially it's looking at all those nodal connections between okay here's all the power connections on this power plane here's where these signal lines are connecting these different components and it takes it over to this this PCB layout side of the software and you've got these footprint files that tell the computer okay here's the actual physical layout of the chip here's where the actual connection points to those chips are physically you know the sizes the dimensions where they're laid out and then it associates all of that data that you did on the schematic one to the actual pins in that footprint file and then you're there starting to deal with the more physical side of the thing you know where this is the know, Tetris yeah, this is this is it's a big complex Tetris game with a whole bunch of other rules, you know, where you can't put two green blocks next to each other because they'll do bad things, um, you know, and and you want to try and sort of fit everything together in a nice, neat, you know, uh, a pattern where it's it's everything is sort of working in as a small of a space as you can you can get it. Um, you know, and, and everything's working efficiently and, and, you know, nobody's juggling each other's elbows. And it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, if you're, uh, you know, kind of like if you're, you know, old big clock makers and you're looking at watch and they've got all these different gears sort of spinning together and they're like, how do they get all of that stuff to work in synchronicity with each other in such a compact design? And it's, it's like that, except instead of mechanical gears, how we're dealing with, you know, all these different chips and electrical signals and, and, you're fitting in, into here, but essentially the the program, you know, you're able to, to sketch it out, you know, with the schematic one in, in that program, simulate it sometimes, and you take it over here and you start dealing with this this layout. And then there's also a whole bunch of simulation programs you can add on to that side where, you know, let's say if we want to, uh, you know, you can you can take it and, and take like a you know uh, do a, a sort of a rendering of it to see like, hey, this is what the layout would would actually look like, you know, with you know the you, know, you can import STL files, step files for what the actual chips would look like, not just with their, their footprint of how they attach to that green board, but physically in the three-dimensional aspects. And then you can also do things, uh, you can do more advanced analysis. Like if you're worried about, okay, how much, how much power are we pumping into the small board? And I want to, I want to run, you know, a thermal analysis and there's, there's software that will take that and you can, you know, it knows, okay, you know, it has all this information about how this chip is operating and the power parameters, how the power is going to dissipate. And you can, and, and now it also in this layout format, it now knows the three dimensional positioning of all this stuff. And you know, the material, you can tell it the parameters of the material you're using as that, that when you look at that green board, you know, usually it's like a, a fiberglass based board. There's different types for electrical reasons and sometimes structural reasons and, and thermal reasons and all sorts of different stuff. But it can, it can take, if you know all that stuff and you got, you know, they have these big computer programs that they've had some computer wizard go through and, and program and you can run these, these really deep um, simulations and analysis is on the board for a number of different things, you know, for, for thermal, we talked, you know, a lot of time about all these noise issues, you know, with really high speed connections, um, 
pushed into a really, really tight, compact area. You got to worry, you know, it's, it's like having a whole crowd of people all stuffed into one room and you need to make sure that everyone, you know, you've got a half dozen different conversations in here and that nobody's conversation is interfering with somebody else's conversation. And they're, you, you need know, to soundproof the walls. Yeah, well, some, sometimes, you know, you can have the, the two people are, are quiet enough where they can be right next to each other and they're talking fine and can hear each other fine. And so you got some really loud guy in there, you know, and, and you're like, okay, you know, stick stick a little, you know, uh, you know, a, a little sound barrier between him and the other guys. So he's he's not, you know, over talking everybody else. But there's, there's you know, for that analogy, there's this, this um, there's these analysis programs you can run. Um, in this layout where, you know, you position and you can do this, this really deep analysis to sort of predict, you know, where are you doing? Cause half the time you're, you know, you're doing like, okay, I understand the electrical properties of here and I have a good idea of how much noise this component might be able to do, but without sitting down there and running through the calculations by hand, you don't know for certain. So, you know, after you've been doing it for a while, you sort of, you, you have a good eye, uh, sort of understanding because, you know, sometimes you had to actually sit down and run the calculations by hand. Um, and other times you've worked with these components and you know that, okay, this type of system is going to cause this much interference. And I can generally get about this close. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, it's good enough where you're like, okay, I know this isn't going to do it and I can push it right there. And then other times you're like, okay, this is close enough or, or, you know, complex enough where I need to actually do some additional analysis. And, and unless it's a really simple circuit, um, or a simple setup, those calculations, it gets to the point where you can't do it by hand anymore, or at least you shouldn't be because you're going to be spending a long, long time doing it. And there are these programs that are integrated into this design software, this CAD software to do all of this. And so you've got this whole really nice, you know, the, the computer-aided design, you know, there, I think the main programs, there's, um, there's Altium, there's uh, AutoCAD has um, their Eagle um, software, KiCad, um, uh, is has come a long way. Particularly, I think CERN started funding their development. They're kind of the open source um, one, um, and their their software. They used to lag behind behind in some of these really expensive professional setups, but they've they've made a lot of advancements. They've got a very nice yeah. software suite now too. Um, I think ORCAD, Cadence, uh, um, and you've got all these different options. You know, there's there's a good good bit out there for different ways to do it. To take a bit of a step back from what he's saying. Uh, I going from that schematic to that physical layout with the uh, the rat's nest, as it's somewhat affectionately called. Uh, it makes me think of those little puzzle games you might play on your phone or your computer, where you have a bunch of circles and a bunch of things between them, and you have to drag the circles around so that nothing's crossing, except it's wires instead of circles that are being drawn onto a board. And sometimes it's impossible. And that's when you have to figure out, you know, sort of the bridges, which is adding another layer. And then it's how do I make sure that the bridges aren't overlapping? Um, Three-dimensional so chess. Yeah, the, yeah the, it's, it's that point where I always think of it as cheating, where you're like, okay, well, this design doesn't work. Let me let me add in some of these, you know, a couple more layers or, you know, some <laughs> some other advanced fabrication technique where, where I get to cheat and like, okay, that doesn't work well. But we add, in, right. add in this little additional component you know, layer or, or set up to but it, it increases can, costs and complexity. It, it, yeah. But you know, it's, it's uh, one of those things where, you know, if you want to design something truly small, like, I mean, if you, you know, everyone has the AirPods now, and if you think about it, that thing has, you know, there's a Bluetooth component and there, there's a power component, there's the speaker, um, you know, there's all this stuff and it's crammed into such a tiny, tiny spot. And the amount of, of, 
of thought. You know, they've got some they've got some really advanced stuff. You know, uh, custom type ICs that they're they're developing specifically for those purposes, which is beyond you know what unless you're a, a very you know high level big company that can afford to do that kind of stuff, um, you're not going to get quite to that level. But even even in just like the maker community, you know, if you're if you optimize everything well you know, and, and set it up well, you can, you can really compact down, you know, even to what would have before, you know, even like five years ago been considered something that you need to, you know, you need to have right. a, a lot of funding behind to be able to do it can be done sure. a, a lot cheaper now. Yeah. So, um, so you have this, like Olivia was saying, you go from a schematic where you're making sure that you are connecting all of these things at a logical level where they, where they need to be connected and then the the board layout is where um, the rubber meets the road, and you've got to figure out physically in this physical universe how do you get those logical connections to happen in a way where uh, all of the thermal characteristics and the EM interference uh, is is at a level where the thing still works the way it's supposed to. Uh, in addition to working in the form factor and under the constraints, the operating constraints, like if it's going to go in somebody's ear versus something that can sit in a project box, they're very different ideas. Um, so let's say we we have a PCB layout from in, in KiCad or in whatever whatever software we're using that we're really happy with. Um, what do we do from there? At that point, you know, you've got all these these different manufacturers, and depending on you know, usually you're you're dealing with you know just a, either a two layer board would be the the normal type, or you know sometimes a, a four layer if it's a little bit more advanced. Um, but you, you take a look at, you know, basically how small are, are these little traces you're designing and, and the V is basically the holes that, that go through to connect the different layer points. So, you know, when, as Olivia was saying, you the little game and, and you get stuck because there's just no way to, to uncross it, these lines. And then I come in and I cheat and I add a different layer. And so basically I've got something that'll pop from one layer, go underneath it and pop back up. And, and you've designed all this. And basically you need to take a look at, well, usually as you're designing, you've sort of pre-picked out, you know, what what tolerances you want to meet. You know, okay, I can only use traces this small or V is this small. Um, you know, this is this is generally the design constraints I'm, I'm designing that around. And then you go to your your manufacturers and you know, you've got uh, there. There are a lot of manufacturers that are actually tailoring themselves to sort of the more maker market kind of you know uh, uh, design. So if if things don't need really really fine, super accurate tolerances on things, um, you can you can get them for you know quite cheaply compared to at least what it what it used to be. Um, you know, where it might have been a really big deal to to get something you know made before, and you know. I can pay like 50 bucks and, you know, in, in a week and a half have a, you know, a board back that would have cost me like a thousand dollars, you know, you know, a couple years before. Um, and then with the more advanced stuff, you've got a whole slew of these, these advanced fabrications that can do all these advanced processes, these multi-layer boards. Sometimes they're literally embedding components inside of these, these layers, or they're, they're using super thin layers. So, you know, you can have, you know, we were talking, you know, two, four layers. Well, you can get like, you know, eight, 16 layers, you know, all crammed into this, this board. And, and they can do it at sometimes, you know, like half the thickness of a normal one, or, you know, using some sort of special material or, or all sorts of different options for this, you know, instead of using a drill to drill out those vias, they, they can use a laser, you know, to have a, a you know, to create a, these micro vias, um, you know, all these advanced things that they can do. Um, and that's how yeah. you get into the, the really, really small 
miniaturized things. But, you know, essentially you, you sort of pick it out and you, you send it out to the fabricator. And then there's also, so, you know, that's just the making the, the board, that little green board most people think of when they think of it. But then you also got to think about, okay, now how do I get actually, you know, I've got this board, I've got all my components selected, but how do I get the components on the board? And, you know, you know, a lot of the times you'll get your board and you're just doing that by hand. You've got your your solder station or your rework station um, and, and you're putting it on there and you're soldering it um, and, and, you know, just attaching it by hand. But then sometimes, you know, there's either the complexity or you want to streamline it um, or it's just, you know, a really, really small component. And so doing it by hand is really difficult. And so they have these uh, what they call an assembly house. Um, or sometimes you'll hear of what is a, a turnkey assembly where they're they're doing both. Basically, you give them the design. You say, okay, here's the list of the the components that the I want to put on it. The bill of materials. Yeah, the, the, you know, they call it the bomb. So, you know, a lot of times we're talking about, oh, you know, where's, where'd that bomb go? Did you have the bomb ready? And, and you get somebody in the, house in the office looking down and you're like, what are they talking about? Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so you got this bill of materials. Um for all the components, you know, where you're sourcing them from. And those, you're talking about the computer-aided designs. Well, not only can you design all this, but then you can output different file formats for, you know, okay, here's how the structural layers work. And then here's the different positions and orientations of all these different pieces because it has all this information about the physical properties of it. And you can take all this stuff, output it, and give it to these uh, these assembly houses or a full turnkey um, a fabricator. And they'll take it and they'll produce the board and then they've uh i've they've got some usually what's called like a, a pick and place machine is is a popular one now where if you've ever seen the videos on there and basically it's this machine it's got the board and it's got this little arm that's zipping around like a suction cup and it's picking things up and spinning them around and putting on the board and it it's it's amazing to watch it just how fast this goes but essentially they take all that information you know put it into the the machine code uh format that that thing sets it up and then they just feed the components into it and it literally takes all that stuff and sets it up on the board and then they do what's called a usually for that would be a reflow process where instead of hand soldering something what they do is they put on solder paste which is essentially the the solder but instead of it having it in a solder wire it's uh it, it looks almost like an ink or a glue. And essentially what it is is really, really small balls of uh, solder suspended in a sort of a flux uh, type gel kind of material. And so they, they layer on just enough of that that's been, you know, been calculated based on the design and, and the computer, you know, these, these different CAD tools you're using to help design it. And you lay all that out and calculate and you have the, it places the right amount and then it places the component on it. And then they basically shove it in an oven. And there's a, you know, there's, there's these different thermal branches. So usually what the deal is they'll heat the whole board up to a temperature right below the solder what, what melts the solder and then they spike it up there just long enough to melt the solder, let everything attach. And it's, it's really cool to, if, to watch a video of this happening because what actually it's happens- It's almost like a that, pot belly sandwich, right? Like going through the- uh, Oh yeah, <laughs> the quite, quite literally. But then the coolest part is, you know, not only are you watching the cheese melt all over your sandwich, but the, the surface cohesion, this is where you're getting really into the physical side of things, you know, for a reflow process- you know, they, the component might not be quite positioned just right. It'll be on the pads, but not quite center. But then because it's got this, this even number of pads and, and when the solder melts for just that moment there, the surface cohesion, that little solder will literally straighten out the ship, the, the chip on the board so that, you know, it, there's even tension between all those melt points. Um, then, you know, that's, that's a very popular manufacturing technique nowadays uh, for, for large scale production. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's different, 
different types of uh, ways to manufacture it. So usually, you know, the pick and place and, and a reef combined with a reflow technique is is very common and popular. There's tons of awesome, really cool machinery that does all this. Uh, a lot of the times, if you're doing large scale productions on sometimes not as miniaturized components, they'll do what's called a reflow machine, which is or sorry, not a reflow, um, a wave solder machine, um, which is you'll see what looks like a you know, think of you know the car factory. You get those little assembly tracks, and you see all the stuff rolling around there. And they literally have will will have like a molten solder waterfall, or sometimes a like a little pool of molten solder, and you'll see the stuff go through that or dip down into the solder thing and come out. And it's literally like, you know, they're 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 way they're they're flowing this wave of molten solder over it, um, and and letting that create all these connection points through the system and. Different techniques, depending on how you're fabricating, it, will sometimes you know, involve uh, um, you know different design considerations, and usually you'll have you know you'll decide pretty you know a little bit earlier on like which one you're going to go with. Um, but there's all these really cool fabrication techniques to do do different things um, that you know you can then choose once you've sort of designed your circuit. Yeah, um, and then send it send it to them and get back you know either your boards or your fully assembled boards and you're ready to to start testing and hopefully do a minimal amount of debugging. Yeah, so I mean that's a great segue uh, into kind of like the next step here. So you've got you know the, you send these these bombs out the the schematic and your your um, your board layout. Let's say we use one of these turnkey assembly things, and we just get finished product, finished product back to uh, back to us. Olivia, now you've got a handful of boards. Um, tell me a little bit. That doesn't have our software on it. It's it's just sort of like the the integrated circuits connected in the way that we uh, wanted them to be connected. Um, but we're still a, a bit of a ways from done. So tell me a little bit about given these 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 boards. What do you do? Right. So you, you get your nice uh, finished board and, you know, as part of your design process, even as you're miniaturizing everything, you need to make sure that you leave yourself a way to program it because otherwise you've got this really cool looking, uh, you know, green board that does nothing. So, well, if you're going for something with a brain, there are also, you know, pure analog things, but not quite what we're going for. So you still have to go figure out your way. Uh, with my example of the 8-bit microcontroller, you know, it's got its little tool that it uses to program it, and now you've got to put a different end on it so that you can you know, attach it to what is probably a much smaller connection on your production board. And you go and you, you, know, you flash your software onto it, and then you watch it work, and a lot of boards will set up some sort of a debug port, which we touched on a bit earlier, be it JTAG or Serial. and you know, if it's your first couple of boards for a run, you might have, you know, a version of your software with extra print statements or something. When you're first, you know, deploying your application, you might have a debug mode that you can then turn off. And it's sort of the same thing. You do that and you you watch it and it's you you make sure that the um, the logic levels are doing what you want, that it's communicating the way you think it should with that extra debug information through that nice little port that you built in. And then when you don't need it anymore, you can put on the production software, but then you sort of, usually people will cap the port or take that chip off or have some, some way of making it not available unless you're selling it to someone else who really needs the debug port. And then, which by the way, in episode five, talking with Rob Peasley and Brian McCord is a step that often gets omitted. 
uh, and is an, is a wonderful gift to the reverse engineers taking your <laughs> your designed electronics and trying to subvert it or figure out vulnerabilities. So uh, it's it's a really good point, and and it's it it it, it uh, is indicative that you work at a security company that you thought of this step at, in, in, <laughs> in developing your electronics. <laughs> yeah, the uh, it's a a a hacker's dream and a uh, production runs nightmare. <laughs> forgetting that step. Right. So you, you develop, uh, you, you put your, your software on, which you had developed uh, earlier in, in the process while you were having the dev boards and sort of the spaghetti set up with the breadboards and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put the, the, the software on there, but then you've got to go do some testing, right? So tell me a little bit about what testing looks like, you know, even using some examples of what you do in your, in your day job, like how do we develop test plans around things and, and make sure that the electronics do what we uh, what we intended them to do. Yeah, so the the sort of two main batches of how I think of testing things is sort of a a full functionality things and or test where you sort of probe where the edges of things are cuz a lot of both hardware and software doesn't necessarily think of every single edge case of you know what happens if it's expecting a number from zero to nine and you give it a hundred or the, the uh, hardware equivalent of, you know, did you build in protections for things? Like if this is expecting five volts, if I feed it 5.5, will it fry? Um, maybe what you're doing is so specific that that is okay, but that's still something that you need to sort of stress test. And then the other um sort of testing is what I would call, you know, a volume test or a usage test where you take, you know, your um, your garage door opener and you sit there and you say, okay, what if I run this a hundred times in a row? Will it, you know, still work the way I think it does? Does it heat up too much? Sort of some of these problems that we were talking about with the, the physical electrical design. Um, you know, what happens then? And once you get both of those sets of tests done, you can sort of put together a plan of, okay, these are the circumstances in which everything works the way you think it should. These are where it starts to act a little bit, you know, on the fritz or something. And you know, a lot of, it's sort of the software equivalent of a lot of uh, electrical data sheets will have these curves of, you know, ideal operating conditions with, you know, temperature ranges and uh, current ranges and all of these things. And it's, sort of your equivalent of that, of what are your ideal operating conditions for this hardware, firmware, software interface? And, you know, if things start to go awry, that testing will also usually give you some idea of how to get it back on track, how to recover from if something does go wrong, and all of that important and occasionally overlooked uh, it sure is. Yeah. And and by some really talented uh, engineers sometimes. I mean, there was an article that came out two or three weeks ago about uh, Tesla uh, had its um, main uh, processing unit failing because one of the flash memory chips uh, was receiving Linux swap files um, and getting read writes over and over and over again. And one of the things about flash memory that you, you know you two are well aware of is uh, it, you only get so many read writes out of it, and uh, and if you are kind of frivolously writing to this thing over and over and over again, if you give it 
12, 18, 24 months, it'll just fail. And now you've got, um, you've got what they uh, affectionately referred to as, you know, a consumable item in this uh, soldered on, you know, flash chip that they've got to go replace and, you know, who knows how many vehicles, right? But um, yeah, one of these examples of if you're, if you're not reading what the, what the design constraints and intended usages of the components on your design are, it's going to be really hard to test those, um, test those constraints. Awesome. Well, Phil, you told me a little bit about some of the kind of up and coming things on the PCB side that you're really excited about, these kind of more complicated um, layerings and micro vias and embedding things like capacitors inside of uh, inside of traces rather than having to put them on the board. Um, that's really exciting. Olivia, what are some of the things that you're excited about on like the the firmware and microcontroller side that you see? trends in the industry? Yeah, one of um, the most exciting things is just seeing how much smarter all of these things are being or becoming over time. You know, uh, five, 10 years ago, your your 8-bit microcontroller, yes, it's got its inputs and outputs and that's what it's good at, but it might only have, you know, three or four. It might only support, you know, this one specific serial thing and this, you know, one specific peripheral thing. And that's You've got more um, more flexibility than you know a circuit that does only one thing, but still not a lot. And as it, new and new things come out, you get to see you know not only are the packages getting smaller and smaller, but you get more and more flexibility in the firmware in terms of okay, now I have you know these four different options to talk to all of the other chips, which means that now I can use different types of chips that might have been blocked off before because some can only talk over you know SPI versus I two C versus, you know, just some generic GPIO protocol and, you know, sort of just giving you more flexibility, more access to parts that you couldn't use before. Another thing is you get, you start getting more memory on these systems. You get more RAM, you get more flash memory, which means that the programs that you can write for these small controllers can now get larger and larger. Not necessarily in a, I'm going to write the most inefficient program ever, but now things that might have required an entire CPU can be done on these tiny microcontrollers instead. So now that opens a whole new uh, wave of embedded applications for things that would have required a full computer instead, you know, five, 10 years ago. Awesome. So we're getting more flexible and cheaper components um, uh, as well as more flexible and uh, and uh, nuanced ways of sticking them together on the PCB. So it's a pretty exciting place to be. I guess last question is for people that are interested in getting involved in more electronic design and maybe have a bit of a software background, where can they start? When I started getting into this sort of firmware type design, I read all of the uh, maker books coming back to the maker community. You know, there's make AVR, all about those 8-bit microcontrollers. There's make, you know, electrical design part one, two, and three with different sub-focuses. There's one specifically for um, different protocols to talk to different types of chips and the intricacies there. And really, you know, going between that and, you know, the forums that you might see and just looking at what people have already done and trying to understand that and reading, you know, that sort of background information, I think is a really good place to start. Awesome. Phil, do you have any um, recommendations for people that want to get into a bit more of the hardware side of things? 
uh, she listed about half the ones I probably would have started on. I'd, I'd say the uh, the other thing for like me, um, you know, there are all these awesome kits um, out, you know, that are, are perfect for like, you know, uh, uh, students that, you know, kind of have an interest in or even, even if you're not just a student, you're just, you just want to, you know, build your, your garage opener project. You just decide you want to do that. And, and you can go get these, these kits where, you know, it'll, some of them use those books or other, or other, you know, sort of uh, guide intro books and they'll, they'll give you, you know, like an Arduino board or a raspberry Pi and these shields and they'll have, you know, a basic breadboard and some basic components and usually your LED. So you can stick it in there and, and, you know, go through this, this uh, process of, you know, connecting to this, the firmware level of the software and programming to get that light to blink on and off, you know, which is really cool the first time, you know, somebody does that from, from the start to finish, um, you know, and, and so as an introduction point, there, there's tons of great material um, and, and great just starter kits that give you everything you need to, to just dip your toes into it. And then, you know, if you do that and you're a little bit more comfortable you know, with what you're doing, you know, maybe you ran out and you, you bought a, you know, bought a soldering iron kit now. So you can do just a little bit more than your, you know, your, just your breadboard components. You can start soldering stuff together. And, you know, uh, before a lot of the, you know, you're talking about the CAD software, a lot of that CAD software is really expensive. Um, and I think I, I mentioned, uh, uh, I think it's actually pronounced as you said, uh, KiCad. KiCad, um, KiCad, whatever. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> potato, potato. Um, but you know, it's this, this open source, um, uh, electrical PCB, uh, design software suite, um, that, um, you know, is, I think I mentioned before, you know, they, they got funding from uh, CERN, um, a few years back to essentially, you know, improve themselves. And, and they're at a point where, you know, they're, it's, it's almost as good as, as some of the really expensive software suites and it costs nothing. So, you know, you can get on there and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if, uh, um, you know, different uh, YouTube videos. If you ever like, you know, just browsing YouTube videos, you know, uh, there's some maker channels on there that, you know, go through some great introductions and, you know, okay, here's the basic setups of how to, how to use this. You know, here's a, you know, your first blinky light to take your blinky light off of a, uh, you know, a breadboard and produce, you know, through one of these, these cheap, uh, um, you know, maker focused uh, uh, fabricator, uh, companies, you know, to, to actually, you know, to, to see something that you, you did on a breadboard and then actually get it built out on a PCB and, and, you know, get the components and solder it on there. And now you have got something that looks, you know, what, what five or 10 years ago would have essentially been a professional, you know, board. And now you're, you can do that, you know, out of your, you know, your, your garage or, you know, your, your, uh, you know, your study, designing this on your computer and, and, and putting together and, and doing all this for, you know, pennies on what used to be dollars, you know, a very cheap budget. And so there's, there's, uh, it, it's, I think it's great because anybody that has an interest in doing this, there's not a high cost bar to getting started. Really, you just need, you know, the motivation, you know, to go out there and, and, you know, even if you don't want to, you know, even if you can't buy the stuff, there's, there's a lot of, you know, open free material um, out there from the, from the software side of it to, you know, the tutorials that sort of guide new users into it. Cause one of the best things about, you know, designing this kind of stuff, and I, this definitely applies to, you know, the, the software, the greatest thing about software is the flexibility, you know, the coding. And before the hardware was a little bit more, you know, stranger, or, you know, you need to be able to, you have a full lab or, you know, you need to be able to shell out this amount of money to get stuff off, 
stuff made. And a lot of that portion has been taken out of it. The, the software CAD, uh, the, the CAD programs for it, you know, there's, there's no longer like a price bar to be able to get in there and, and use that and learn that. Um, and so it's really available to pretty much anybody who, who has an interest in it. It's really exciting. Well, Phil, Olivia, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and talking about designing electronics. I hope to have you on again very soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.